Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord, descending from heaven, came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has been raised from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. This is my message for you. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came to him, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, where they will see me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Cemeteries, or rather tombs in Jesus' day, were much different than modern-day cemeteries like the one I'm standing in here. Uh, they weren't places where multiple people are buried and laid to rest their whole bodies inside of a coffin or um, urn buried within the ground with a headstone or anything like that. In those days, a tomb would have been purchased by somebody after a quarry had finished its work of clearing out as much rock as they could get out uh, in order to use for the building of, of various temples and buildings in the area. And so they, somebody would purchase a space in this rock that was left over and they would either hewn out a uh, cave or they would use a natural niche or cave that was there and they would complete it and finish it so that it was usable. And then they would often, the more expensive ones, would have a rolling stone that would be able to cover over the entrance to the tomb. But these tombs weren't meant for the final resting place. They were really a place to prepare the body and let the body decompose over time for the final resting place. And so they would take the, a freshly deceased person and they would place it in this tomb and they would prepare it with all kinds of spices and, and different um, incense and, and perfumes and various things like that that would all serve as purposes of covering up the smell and also they would serve the purpose of desiccating the body, drying it out so that it would begin to decay um, more quickly and so this uh, and, and more cleanly. And so this is the process that they were intending when they took Jesus down from the cross and there was a tomb nearby that had just been purchased and had not even been used yet by Joseph of Arimathea. And so Joseph offered as a disciple of Jesus to allow Jesus' body to be laid in this tomb. Tombs like this would have been used multi-generationally. They would have been passed down from generation to generation and many people would have been laid in these tombs so that this process could happen to their bodies. Now, some of those tombs would become resting places for the ancestors and for the family as the body um, decomposes and as all that's left is bones, they would take those bones and they would collect them into different boxes, ossuaries, or sometimes just lay them in different sections of um, a, a crypt underground. 
Um, and so sometimes these tombs served as those crypts as well, and sometimes they didn't. And sometimes there was a crypt somewhere else, an ancestral home, that the bones would then be collected and taken to be gathered to their ancestors at some point in the future. And so this is what they were intending for Jesus. It wasn't his final resting place, but it was the place where they were going to prepare his body and allow it to have the natural processes take over until they could collect his bones and then return it um, to wherever his ancestors were laid to final rest. And so that's why we see on Easter morning the women coming to the tomb because their job wasn't done yet. They were still caring for and preparing the body for this longer-term process. And so they were coming back to make sure, A, that nobody had tampered with Jesus' body or the tomb. They were coming back to show their loyalty and care and concern for their, their ex-teacher who had passed and uh, to continue to prepare his body and anoint it with various perfumes to keep the body from smelling um, and from being, in, in a sense, undignified even in his death. And as they came to the tomb that morning, they saw from a distance that the tomb was not closed. And in Matthew's account that we read this morning, we see that when they get closer, there is an angel sitting on top of the tomb. And the, the soldiers who were there and were commissioned to guard the tomb were so terrified at the sight of this angel that they were quaking, that they were literally shaking and they had become, Matthew says, like dead men, that they were pale and frozen at the terror of the sight of these angels. And yet, these women who were coming weren't as terrified. It's almost as if they expected something. It's almost as if they were still holding out a little piece of hope that what Jesus had been teaching about his own um, life and what it would mean in his own resurrection, that it would come true. We see that some of his other disciples had also understood Jesus said that he was going to raised from the dead. We'll see that next week when we look at the passage in Luke as Jesus travels with two people on the road to Emmaus. But we, all, we also don't see any of the 12. Where, where are the other 11 that we don't know what happened to? We know what happened to Judas, but where are the other 11? Why aren't they with the women? Why aren't they coming and preparing the body with the women and showing their respects? Well, they're in fear. They're in fear and the women probably had a little bit more freedom. Um, to be able to show up and not be unsuspicious or not have suspicion on them by the Roman guards and the authorities about what they were doing. They would have been seen as caring for their friend, their loved one's body. So the women show up, this angel appears, and they're not really taken that much aback, at least in this account. And the angel tells them um, that they can see the tomb and see that Jesus is not there. And then the angel commissions them and tells them that they're to go back. They're to go back to the boys, to the men who had followed Jesus for these last three years, and to tell them that Jesus was going on ahead of them and that he would see them in, in back in Galilee. This is the message that they were commissioned to take. The first evangelists, women, now, in this account, in Matthew, we see that it was Mary Magdalene, and we see that it was another Mary. But in Mark and in Luke, we see that there's many other women that are also there. John only mentions Mary Magdalene, but gives the implication that there were other women with Mary. And so there, there's these different accounts about who was there, but they all basically say the same truth, that it was women who first came on Easter morning 
and discovered the empty tomb and discovered that Jesus was raised from the dead. And it was the women first who heard the good news of Jesus' resurrection and then were commissioned as evangelists to go share this good news with the men. And it's also true that in each account we see that Jesus interacts with these women or different variations of these women before he interacts with any of the male followers. This is important because as history tells us, women weren't really um, equal citizens in those days like they are today. In fact, it's a fairly new phenomenon in the world that women have achieved as much equality as they have. In those days, women, women wouldn't have been expected to testify in court and their testimony wouldn't have held much weight in front of any legal process. And so the fact that these stories all coalesce around the same idea that women were the first to discover and witness the resurrection and that women were the first to be commissioned to bring this good news to men as witnesses to it lends some credibility from a historical perspective. From, from a perspective of ancient times, it would have been easy to discredit these accounts because men would have just said, oh, these women are hysterical in emotion at the loss of their teacher. And they, they're just making up stories. And that's likely what the defense would have been by the scribes and the Pharisees and, and Sadducees who had placed Jesus under condemnation in the first place. But if it was men who had brought the testimony, it would have been harder to refute. So later on, when the Gospel writers were writing down their memories and the accounts of what had happened in, in Jesus' life and ministry and his death and his resurrection, it would have really made sense for them in those days to record that it was Peter or John or some of those others who first found the tomb. They would have just left out the women. It wouldn't be that they would have lied. They would have just started the story with when the men approached and found the tomb and when the men came into contact with the resurrected Jesus first. Instead, these accounts all include the story of the women. And the reason for it is because it's true. It's how it happened. The women were the first to show up at the tomb because of their care and concern for their teacher and their care for his body. And the women were the ones who were first commissioned by the angel to go and to tell the, uh, the brothers, and, and so did Jesus. Jesus interacts with them and tells them to go and tell Peter and the others. We only have that part of the story because the gospel writers were compelled to share that with us because that's the way that it happened. No wonder why in the early church we see that women rise to a role of leadership fairly early and that there's many women listed among the apostles in, in various accounts of Paul's letters. Because in Jesus gave discipleship to women as he called them to follow him. And we see various women following Jesus throughout his ministry. In fact, it's various women who are bankrolling and paying for Jesus's ministry as he roams around and teaches and preaches and heals people. And then we see these women caring for Jesus in his death. We also saw these women at the cross, many of these women at the cross, where the men were nowhere to be found but one. So what an amazing story that we have here where Jesus is in his resurrection flipping the world around him even upside down as he commissions women and uses women in an equal role of leadership and in an equal role of witness and testimony to his resurrection as men. Something unheard of in those days. But what is it about this Jesus who's raised from the dead? Well, 
if the Jewish expectation of Jesus was to be true, then this is a king. This is a king of Israel, but not just Israel. This was the promised king over all the world, the one who would redeem Israel and place Israel into its rightful place as being the kingdom among all kingdoms, and the, the, he would be the ruler among all rulers. And yet we see that Jesus' life and ministry is one of humble yet amazing, miraculous ministry and teaching and preaching to country folk to normal people using illustrations that would have rang true to just the commoners of the day, shepherds, farmers, merchants. And so Jesus, Jesus is something different than what they expected. Jesus is a king who came not to just free Israel, but came to free all of humanity. Jesus is a king not coming like we looked on last Sunday, Palm Sunday, to bring peace not war. And so it's the same Jesus we see in the resurrection. Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus didn't raise from the dead, gather his angel armies, pull together an army of the multitude of throngs who followed him after they, it was proven that he was the Messiah, after he conquered sin and death, and then knocked down the doors of Rome and established an eternal kingdom, physical kingdom, here on earth for all eternity at that moment? Why didn't he do that? He had won. The victory was his. And that's not what the resurrected Jesus did. Instead, the resurrected Jesus affirms those who he had called and who he had invited into the kingdom building process. And he gives them the keys and he asks them to participate in the work that he did on the cross as it unfolds through the rest of history. And so we see that the king who is raised from the dead is the same as the king who went to the cross. Not a king of wartime conquering, of violent persecution of his enemies, but a king of peace. A king that sprouts up new life from the ground and who gives new hope to those who would cling to him. How appropriate it is that when the women are taking the news back to the men, Jesus appears to them on the path and then they fall to the ground and they cling to his feet and they worship him. That should be our response. We should fall to the ground at the feet of Jesus, cling to him and worship him in all manner of our life. Even during this time, even during the time where things are uncertain, where we don't know what is going to happen after this pandemic passes and all the effects and impacts it's going to have on our culture, it doesn't really matter ultimately because we know from this story, from Easter morning, that we serve a king who has not changed, a king who is slowly and patiently building a kingdom of peace that will one day rule over all the universe when he returns, a king who asks us to be builders with him in this kingdom to bring about peace and mercy and grace and compassion to all humanity. And so this Easter, as we reflect on the resurrection of Jesus, as we're reminded of the hope that we have, and as we cling to that hope in our own lives, may we bring peace. May we bring love. May we bring grace and mercy and compassion to everyone we interact with. 
witnessing not just to some abstract idea, but to the real king who laid his life down and then conquered sin and death so that we might have freedom. Let us come together now. Let us celebrate the memory of Jesus' sacrifice at the table. Friends, he is risen. He is risen indeed. This morning, as we recognize Jesus' resurrection, the hope and the peace that it gives to us, and as we continue to worship from our homes through April 30th, I hope that you reflect in the season of Easter on what God has done to bless you, that you would come with thanksgiving daily to God, and that even as we struggle, even as we have challenges, even as we experience many different types of losses, that we would find new life, new promises, new hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ in this season. Now, may the risen Lord Jesus bless you. May he keep you. May he rake his face to shine upon you and lift his countenance upon you and bless you forever and ever. Amen.